Good afternoon, Lumpur. Good afternoon, Rajan Sadhguru. Thank you for uh, accepting to do another video, answering a few more questions that people have. So today is uh, Friday, the 29th of May. So the first question for today is about how to reconcile feelings like the need to be competitive, to get ahead in life, with the Buddha's teaching of non-attachment and non-self. Well, it's uh, like we're in meditation, we're actually looking at feelings, not judging them, but observing the the feeling of competitiveness is like this. Um, and, and the need to feel we have to get ahead in life. Well, these are all conditions of the mind that we create and identify with. We cling to these views that I have somebody who has to get ahead in life or I feel competitive with my fellow workers and so forth. And, this is, this is to be observed, it is what it is. You know, you can't just feel the way you want, but you, you can be aware of the, the feeling you're having in the present moment. And learning to trust that, being aware that the feeling of competition, of wanting to get ahead, uh, or even the feeling about the future, wanting to, to be successful in the future, is like this. You keep, you trust your awareness rather than the feeling, no matter how convincing or unpleasant or exciting it might be. So, in the, you know, the, the uh, society we live in is a competitive one. So it's, you know, you're conditioned to be competitive. The conditioning for most of us is, you know, to try to be better than someone else. And so, you know, this, this begins on the playground and in kindergarten and in school. The, you know, there's always uh, somebody stronger, bigger, better, uh, strong, you know, that, that we tend to compare ourselves with. And this is all done through thinking. Like, it, it's really very, very important to be the observer of thought rather than the thinker. And so, because we, we identify so strongly with our feelings and thoughts that these tend to take us over. And, uh, you know, we become what we, we're thinking. We do this grasping, do this clinging to these, these habitual patterns of emotion, of thoughts, the words that stimulate emotions desires that arise and cease, then we, you know, we're constantly changing all the time, you know, making value judgments about right and wrong, good or bad, or worrying about the future and regretting the past or, you know, the, the whole sense of the samsara or the world of suffering is it's created by us through this blindness, through this habitual attachment to sankaras, to thoughts of sankaras, emotions of sankaras, 
Sankara's then very nature is to change and arise and cease. So what can you do about it? Can you, you know, you can't get rid of Sankara's just because you don't want them or we're not attacking them in the sense of annihilating them, but understanding that that which is aware of Sankara's is not a Sankara. So awareness, mindfulness, consciousness, aware of itself is, is not Sankara. Where when we identify with consciousness with, with the mind, then the, then the uh, problems arise. So, it, no matter how ambitious you might be or lacking in ambition, whether you're, you know, a, an egomaniac or incredibly vain or you, you have suffered from feelings of inadequacy and inferiority, these are all sankharas that, you know, doesn't matter what, what quality they have, as long as we begin to use them, to see them, that which sees and recognizes the feeling of superiority is like this. If I think I'm better than you, uh, and, you know, I can be aware of it. If I see it as something that, you know, from the ideal that we're all equal, and we're, you know, that the ideal of equality, and that, you know, that's an ideal, but then if I do feel in the present moment that I'm better than you, it's not an ideal, but it is uh, an emotion or a feeling that arises. And who, who is it that is aware of the presence and absence of that feeling is awareness. You know, it's what you really are rather than what you think you are or believe you are. So it's not about judging, you know, if, you, if you're very idealistic about equality, and then you feel superior to somebody else, then you can make value judgment that you shouldn't feel that way. You can go on into a into a kind of self-disparagement because you see yourself as somebody who is vain or arrogant and you shouldn't be. These are all mental conditions that we create. That they're habit patterns that we've developed through our lifetime. And what isn't a habit pattern is mindfulness. It's not a condition, it's not a sankhara, it's not a, a, a phenomenon, it is the reality of here and now. Another question is how in Buddhism we include the mind as one of the senses. So we're used to the five physical senses generally speaking, and in Buddhism the Buddha often talks about the mind as a sixth sense. Could you explain how to understand and how to practice with that, please? Yeah, Buddhism has six senses, where everyone else only has five. <laughs> and this is because, they, you know, the very basic uh, Reality is consciousness, which isn't a sense organ. It, there's no conscious sense organ. You can't, you know, say it's your brain, or you can't show me an organ in, in your body. 
that, that is uh, conscious, that you can, so, so that consciousness is awareness, is mindfulness, and uh, then the mind states, even, <clears throat> even the word mindfulness is, is misleading, so awareness is actually a better <clears throat> word than, than mindfulness. Because mindfulness creates a sense of the mind uh, as, as our reality, where it's consciousness, awareness, and the present, here and now, that is the way out of suffering. Where in the materialist view of life, that there's five senses, there's the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and then uh, the, the mind is is uh, is seen as not a, a consciousness and the mind consciousness and the mind are are lumped together. So we don't, you know, what is consciousness and what is the mind? When we use the the English word mind, it's a kind of generic term for mental phenomena. But uh, so it's it can be misleading if we use consciousness. We're, we're, you know, we're aware of it as, not as, as a mental state, it's not like an emotion or, a, or you know, a, a, it's not dependent on words or feelings or time and place. It's not bound in, in time. It's not, it's not as a place that you can go to because you are conscious all the time. You know, if, if I should ask you, are you conscious? You have to say, yes, you are. It's a, it's a knowing of consciousness. Consciousness isn't a sankara that you create and that has a physical organ in the body. Uh, in the West, we're very much aligned with the brain as consciousness. This consciousness, you know, is it in the brain? Because we, you know, we talk about you know, the brain is the seat of consciousness. But the brain is an organ of the body that, you know, is conditioned through, you know, it's like you computer, like a computer, you, you condition it with cultural conditioning, social conditioning, emotional conditioning, religious conditioning. And, and so, you know, you can condition the brain. And so it's our intellect, our intellect is is dependent on the function of the brain, the thinking process. But who is aware of the thinking, you know? Are you a thought or a concept of any sort? Uh, is awareness dependent on words or is it just the mere presence that we're experiencing here and now? So when I use the word mind, I mean mental formation such as uh, the uh, feelings, the memories, the intellectual, conceptual function, these are mental states that, you know, that are sankharas, they change according to other conditions. You know, so you get praised, you get a reward, you feel happy, you get demoted, you lose your fortune, you get depressed, you know, these are conditions that emotions are very changeable according to to other conditions where the so mental states are impermanent.
So in Buddhism, you know, the the mind is uh, is more or less the, like you might consider the brain or the the conditioned function that we tend to identify with, but that which is transcends or is aware of all conditioning is is not a is not a temporary state that depends on other conditions. So that's why the Buddha encourages us to see our refuge is in Dhamma. The word Dhamma in Buddhism, as we use it in, in the Theravada tradition, means reality. And reality is consciousness here and now. You know, so when I ask you, are you conscious, you, you know, and everyone is going to say yes, but you can't show me, you can't pull out, you know, point to an organ that's conscious, and, and you can't uh, deny your, con you can deny your conscious, but it's rather absurd because you're present here and now, and there's this knowing that you're conscious, but then knowing is overlooked because you tend to, tend to attach to yourself always through the uh, sankharas, the conditions, the phenomena that you believe in and, and have, uh, you know, this, this strong convincing attitude that you are uh, a mortal personality, a physical body. These are so strong, you know, it seems so real because cultural conditioning, social conditioning, even religious conditioning supports that belief that, that each one of us is is limited to a physical form and then, then we have the person the personality that manifests through this form is what we are. So our personality changes according to praise and blame, success and failure. Uh, and just in the weather, you know, you can feel happy when it's sunny and depressed when it's gloomy because the emotions are like that. They depend on other conditions. But what doesn't depend on anything, which is Dhamma, which is ultimate reality, is consciousness. So that kind of leads to the next question. You talk about being awareness, being aware of awareness. Can you explain that, please? In, uh, in the Four Noble Truths, the, the, the original teaching of the Buddha, um, after his enlightenment, he gave, you know, he his, uh, met his five colleagues in Saranath in India, and um, they asked him what he'd learned, you know, when he kind of left the group and go out by himself and became enlightened according to the traditional scriptures. And he uh, gave these four noble truths. And so the, the first noble truth is, is uh, there is suffering. So I've answered this question many times that suffering is, is you know, we're, it's something you can relate to anybody anybody, man or woman, rich or poor, uh, you know, can relate that so, so much of our life we're experiencing suffering, worry about the future, 
regrets about the past, wanting something we don't have, not wanting things to be the way they are, and so forth, so that this, this is to be observed, to be, you know, it's not to be annihilated. The Buddha made it very clear that the teaching is not to annihilate anything. It's not nihilistic, but it's understanding suffering is like this, and we trace that suffering to the causes of uh, blinded by our desires, we create suffering. And so, you know, to see desire as a, as a condition that arises and ceases, the body that we're experiencing this time is a desire body. It needs food, it needs rest. It's made for procreating the species. You know, it's, it's, it's a body, you know, that its very nature is created out of desire. So it's, you know, it's to, to be witnessed to as, as a, a sankara, as a phenomena, as a phenomenon rather than as a personal identity. So then the, the attitude of the insight into seeing desire for what it is arising and ceasing, then the third noble truth is the reality of Naroda, and that's actually consciousness knowing itself. When you let go of desire, when there's a, when you are aware of non-desire, there's still consciousness. So when you see the suffering you create through attachment to desire, to desire for becoming, desire for sense pleasures, desire to get rid of what you don't like, these three categories uh, that are revealed in the second noble truth, we observe, you know, you can observe wanting to get rid of something you don't like, wanting to get rid of fear, wanting to get rid of anger is desire. We want to become enlightened, we want to attain nibbana is, is a desire. It's, you know, these are, like those are good desires, desires aren't necessarily bad, but desires are wanting something you don't have or not wanting what you have. And, and then, the, as I pointed out before, the sensory experiences through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, is wanting the pleasant, the beautiful, the, the interesting, the exciting, and not wanting the boring, the frightening, the, the depressing, uh, the ugly uh, conditions that we experience through, through the mental states. So, Neroda is actually, you know, it's the cessation of suffering. So it's translated usually as cessation, but it doesn't mean the absence of anything, it means the absence of clinging. You know, it's not like the world disappears and you, you become kind of, uh, you know, uh, everything falls away and you're in a state of perpetual bliss. But you see you've had the insight into non-attachment, into desirelessness, into peace, because the nature of consciousness uh, is peace, it's peaceful. It's always peaceful, even though you may be upset, angry, up, 
worried, frightened. Consciousness is never angry, upset, worried, or frightened. And so, you know, through mindfulness, we begin to, to see our true identity. You know, if you need to identify anything, is to trust in the awareness, in consciousness, here and now. It's timeless. It's 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 uh, you know it's and it's it's apparent here and now. It's not something you lack or you have to get, but it's something you awaken to realize uh, in the present moment. So, consciousness, aware of itself, is uh, Naroda, really, and from there, you know, we have the fourth noble truth through right understanding or perfect understanding. It's beyond right and wrong. It's perfect uh, insight into the way things are. And that, that we, you know, develop the, what we call the Eightfold Path or the way of living our lives, the remainder of our lives in these forms through wisdom rather than through desire. And so awareness, aware of awareness, is not awareness of the sankharas themselves, is it? Well, it's a, like it, awareness of sankharas. We live, you know, we, the senses are sankharas. So, you know, we're aware of them. But it doesn't mean we, we, uh, we don't experience sensory uh, the senses, the experience of sensory consciousness, but we, we're no longer attached to it or identified with it. We see it in terms of panya or wisdom, which is that all conditions are impermanent, and dhamma is is not personal. It's not a it's not a personal identity. It's not mine. It's not yours. It, it's it's reality itself. So would it be correct to say that we are usually aware of the objects that arise in consciousness and we're not usually aware of the consciousness part that is in that relationship of consciousness to an object? Well, through, through um, Bhavana or meditation, once we have that insight into consciousness aware of itself, that's the third noble truth, that's Nirodha, the end of suffering. Then we develop or cultivate the path, which is to trust that awareness. So even in, uh, even aware of what we see, we're still you know, we can still be fully aware, not just bound and habitually reacting to what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and think. You know, so we, we can think with awareness. We can, when, when our karma ripens and we feel anger or desire of any sort, we're aware of it, and so we know not to attach to it. We're, you know, it's like, Seeing that putting your finger in the candle flame, once you put it in the flame, you pull it out immediately. Once you see the suffering you create through attachment to sankharas, you, you don't attach to them anymore. You don't 
put your finger into the candle flame. You, 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 you can still use the candle for lighting the room, for reading the book. You know, it's nothing about you, you're going to get rid of fire, but you're no longer foolish into misusing fire by burning yourself with it. So the inside, you know, in the Rona is, is uh, that kind of thing, the, the suffering that you habitually create through not recognizing the problem of grasping fire, grasping conditions that are inevitably going to disappoint you, inevitably going to change. Uh, you know, so they, they conditions can change for the better or for the worse, but they're totally untrustworthy. You can't find any condition that's permanent. So it's, you know, in the fire sermon of the Buddha, they emphasize it's always like fire. And that's a good metaphor for desire. Desire and fire, you begin to see that through grasping desire, you know, it becomes, you know, to the unenlightened, unawakened being, we're, we're used to grasping desires. You know, so we go from one desire to the next. Uh, you know, our life is, is a constant experience of burning ourselves with desire. And so, with those who are interested in liberation from this trap of what we call samsara, is to use mindfulness as a, the, the potential that human beings have, the awareness that we can use to observe the way things are. Not to create a new world or uh, try to change anything, but to no longer be blinded by the, the uh, pain of grasping desires and, and trying to get rid of them is another form of grasping. Like trying to get rid of desire is another kind of desire. So it's not about annihilating the flame or fire, it's about using it in the right way. So the fourth noble truth, the Eightfold Path, is really an exercise in living skillfully, mindfully, and, and not grasping uh, desires out of ignorance, out of stupidity, out of not understanding. Because these four noble truths are, you know, they're noble truths. They're not. They're not uh, truths that that you know are dependent on on other conditions. They're they're you know they're not to be believed in. They're not like a uh, a basic belief that Buddhists have, because suffering, you don't have to believe in it, you can observe it. We know we suffer. We, we can observe suffering. And that which is aware of suffering is not judging it. And then we know, we, we, we can see that we're suffering, and then we think it's me that's suffering, that, that I'm suffering because I'm attached. And I should, that's not using wisdom, that's identifying with suffering and taking it personally rather than seeing suffering as, 
is through this, this habitual grasping, blind kind of grasping of, of phenomena that we're habituated to through, through the conditioning of our life. So awareness of awareness is not something, you know, it's not something refined or remote or impossible. It's, it's natural. It's natural. It's an understanding of the way things are. That just like you know you're conscious, that's right understanding. But you you tend to think that you are the a person who's aware, who's conscious, rather than consciousness is like this. So consciousness is not a kind of refined state uh, that you have to reach towards that you don't have that you've got to cultivate and get through hard work and practice, sitting through hours of meditation and, and disciplining yourself uh, continuously to get rid of defilements. That's still, you know, the sense of, I've got to get rid of something I have and I've got to get something I don't have. So, you know, consciousness is here and now and we're all conscious beings, you know, so, and the human being is, can be aware of, can be aware, consciousness can be aware of itself, you know, so, just like, in, just like the reality of knowing that you are conscious is like this, you can't, what can you do when you can't find it, but you know it, but then you get, still have this delusion that you are a physical body of personality that, that is conscious. So in uh, exploring suffering and, and the second noble truth, the causes of suffering, the attachment, the clinging to desires and realizing that the end of suffering, you know, this is through, through wise consideration, uh, through, uh, you know, through uh, trusting awareness, something that is natural to you that isn't cultivated through practice but awakened to as a reality here and now. Another question uh, that was asked is how do you recommend doing body contemplation? We have a sense certainly as monks of the importance of doing body contemplation and, and many lay people have asked about it. How does one go about doing that? Body contemplation is, you know, because we're, this body is always present here and now. You know, whether you're sitting, standing, walking, lying down, uh, you know, whether you're sick or healthy, uh, the body is is our endless task, isn't it, throughout the day and night. We have to feed it, rest it, uh, relieve it from its tensions, its, its pain, its functions, uh, urination, defecation, so forth. So the body is a constant reminder of, you know, that it's, it's here and now. The body is, is such an obvious phenomenon it's not something, you know, like mental states tend to get refined or coarse and that, but the body is, 
is like this. So, you know, we tend to identify strongly with the body. You know, so what we look like, you know, we look into a mirror and we, we think, you know, I, you know, we make judgments, value judgments about whether we're attractive or unattractive, whether our nose is too big or too small, or, you know, we're young and our skin is beautiful or we're old and wrinkled. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, this identity with the body is, is, uh, it needs to be questioned. Are you really a physical body? Is this what, what I really am? Is this, this physical body? And it's, and it's good to realize that, you know, the body is made of food. We have to eat. Even though in the monastic form, when the Buddha established the the, uh, the linea for the monastic form, we're allowed to have one meal a day, you know, so food has not been banned <laughs> because it's a, it's a necessity, you know, it's for survival because the body needs food because it is food. It's, you know, it's digested food. You put in the food in your mouth and chew it, swallow it, and then the digestion takes over. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to designate where the vitamins go or where things, you know, the body knows what, what to do with itself because it's a, it's a sankara, it's a phenomena that, that is conditioned to perform its duties that is impersonal. You don't take personal responsibility for your digestion. Or, you know, so you, you, you know, and you've got all these nerve endings and sense, you know, the body is a sensitive form. So we can be aware of the sensitivity, the feelings of the body, that when it's too hot or too cold, or, or being aware of the, uh, you know, the, these sensations of pleasure and pain that we experience through the body, through irritation, through through vibration, through pulsation, through digestion, through you know the changing conditions of the environment. The body picks up everything. Some days here in Thailand it's too hot. Some days it it's not. Usually it's too hot. <laughs> but Thailand is like this, you know, and the body, you know, the experience of a, of a Westerner in a tropical country is like this. So, you know, for Thai people, it's, it's not too hot. For an American, one can complain about it's too hot, but this is Thailand, this, this is a tropical country, it's like this. So as we begin to observe, you know, the the parts of the body also that we identify. We, we identify strongly with the face and with the agenda of the body. So we, we have strong views about what masculinity should be or femininity. And so we, we identify with the gender, with the appearance, and with the color of the skin, whether it's pale or dark, with the color of the hair, and the color of the eyes, and, and we have preferences and, and cultural biases and racial prejudices that, that we've inherited through conditioning. And these are, you know, in relation to the body. 
because we're, we're so identified with it. We, you know, on the surface, when, when a monk ordains, he usually, the, the preceptor usually gives him the, uh, a kind of body contemplation as a basic reference to, he points to the hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth and skin. These are the surface, you know, the surface of, of any human physical body. And, uh, you know, when we identify with hair, it's usually vanity, you know, to, uh, wanting to have good-looking, beautiful hair, or feeling ugly if our hair isn't beautiful. It, it all depends on, on what the hair looks like, or the color of the hair, or whether you have hair or you don't have hair. Hair of the body, nails, fingernails, toenails, teeth, skin, this is the surface that we strongly identify with. So in monastic, in the beginning of monastic life, one is contemplating that, you know, am I, you know, is my nature really hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, and skin? So you start looking at these surface conditions no longer through vanity on terms of judging them as as, uh, you know, whether they're attractive or unattractive, but they are what they are. So I used to imagine, you know, in the early years of monastic life, you know, sitting in a group of monks, where you tend to think of them, you know, even though we're all wearing the same robes with shaven heads, you know, we think of them, we took all the skins of the, all the monks, you know, just the skin, of all the monks sitting here in this room and put them in a pile, you wouldn't know who's, who's who. You know, just a, an empty skin sack. You know, it's not like it's, uh, this, or this monk or that monk, but it's like, you know, skin without, you know, the consciousness that enlivens it is, is not attractive, is it? It's just, a corpse, or if you did that with nails, or teeth, or skin, or hair of the body, you know, who's whose, whose nails are these, and whose, whose teeth? You know, can you give a personal name to these, this tooth? It's, it remains, you know, as it is, a, a condition that comes and goes and changes, and will decay, you know, so, Bodies decay, hair decay, teeth decay, and, and nails decay, and the bodies, the skin decays. So this is aware of, this awareness of body contemplation is like reflecting on it, not trying to, to make value judgments about the body, as your body is ugly and disgusting. It's not taking it personally. It's not about convincing yourself that how revolting your body is, like sometimes people misunderstand, thinking that, that uh, we have to become averse and disgusted with our physical bodies, but we lose that sense of vanity, of identity with something that, because we see it for what it is, rather than what we think it is or believe it to be.
And then one final question, Lumpo. Someone was asking, how can one practice in order to, uh, can one reduce the attachment to one's loved ones, for example, a spouse or one's children, so that if or when the spouse dies or the children leave the parents' home, that we don't suffer from the loss so much? Yes, well, this is another, you know, way to be mindful. Should you be attached to your wife and children? <laughs> you know, this is a common enough question because, uh, you know, should you, you know, do you have to get rid of your wife or your children to become totally unattached? But, you know, attachment is like this, and, you know, if you trust your awareness of it, if you are very attached to your wife or your children, this sense of, of you know, what will I do without them, or if they leave, or if my wife or my husband dies before I do. These are imagined scenarios for the future in the present moment. You know, so you can imagine, you know, with the coronavirus uh, as a kind of phantom that's haunting the human beings on this planet at this time. You know, death is much more kind of prominent in our consciousness. What if our beloved ones die? What if our, you know, what if I lose my children, they brought, they leave home, and uh, I, I don't know how I can live without them. All these are mental states that you create. The future is, is imagination. You can imagine anything, uh, you know, and we all know we're going to die, you know, that, this is, that, that these bodies are going to die. This is just nature. This is natural phenomena that it's supposed to do. It's supposed to grow up, get old, and die. That's the way it is. And then we form attachments to, to children, to spouses, and, and you know, then we become worried about, you know, what if things change? What if I lose my wife or my husband, my children leave home? What if they all die from the coronavirus? This, uh, this is imagination, isn't it? You're imagining that. It's, it's what you don't want for the future. But what you can know is that it's like this, being attached, being obsessed, worried about the future, about loss of the love is like this. And this is awareness, which isn't about birth and death anymore. It's not, not something that comes and goes and changes according to other conditions. But the physical forms that we're identified with, with one's own body, with the, with the bodies of our wife or husband, children, you know, these are friends, parents, you know, the, we're attached to to the image of them, to the to the forms of 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 our family that we've never investigated or understood. We just have blindly grasped and then afraid of change and resent any kind of disruption of what you know of our desires to 
hold on to things as they are, when we begin to awaken to the reality of change, then we can we can let go of these attachments, not getting rid of them. You don't get rid of your wife or husband or children or parents. You don't have to leave home or you know to, to do that, but you can be aware. The awareness is not attached to to spouses, to children, to family. Awareness is a, aware of attachment, of clinging uh, to conditions, to images, because you know these. When you're, you're away from your wife or husband or children, you still imagine them. You have images of them. You have pictures, photographs uh, that you hold to. You can even make mental images of what your children look like when they're on the other side of the planet, you know. So these images we create, you know, they, they come and go and change. But they are sankharas, they are phenomena that changes. And what doesn't change, the way out of suffering, the way out of attachment is to understand it. You see it for what it is, and then we have the insight into letting go, which is not a denial or getting rid of, not a controlling tendency, but just realizing, you you know, what your real refuge is in is in awareness, deathless reality itself. Here and now, in Dhamma, your real refuge is in Dhamma rather than in in ideas about the future, fears about the future, or regrets and remorse, guilt about the past. Your, your real refuge is always here, always now. And you can prove this to yourself through waking up by awareness, observing as and the Buddhist teachings are very much, you know, that's their purpose, is to awaken us, not to condition us to become Buddhists, but to awaken us to reality. Thank you, Lord God.